Case is submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 89-1063, First Tier Mortgage Company versus Investors Mortgage Insurance Company. Mr. Dawson, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, my client sued the insurance company over eight policies of private mortgage insurance. They filed a motion for summary judgment. It was set for oral argument after a lot of briefing. If you had been in the courtroom on January the 26th, 1989, you would have heard Judge Bohannon say, these policies should be and are canceled. He said, these policies are void. And then he turned to me and Ms. Dansby and said, the losing party has a right to appeal. I don't think you're getting anywhere, but you may appeal my decision. And so Ms. Dansby and I went back to the office and looked at Rule 4A2. There was more in that colloquy, wasn't there? Yes, Your Honor, and I will get to that in just a minute. Well, I'll get to it right now. He said then back to Mr. Gray, who represented the defendant, I would like for you to prepare suggested findings of fact and conclusions of law, and I want you to point out for me the evidence that you rely on and where I can find it in the record. And gave him 10 days to do that and then said, and give your opposing counsel a copy of that. And then Mr. Dawson, if you find any of those are in error, you may point that out to me also. This was on a motion for summary judgment, wasn't it? Yes, Your Honor. Does the district court ordinarily make findings of fact and conclusions of law on a motion for summary judgment? They don't have to, of course, under Rule 56. They don't have to at all. And I had always thought of findings of fact as being something you have at the end of a bench trial where they're contested facts. Yes, sir. And then I think the court is required to under the rule. But I think under a motion for summary judgment, because we, the lawyers, are supposed to set out in our briefs what the facts are, that it's – I can't tell you what's ordinarily done, Your Honor. I'd say 50-50, something like that. But anyway, it's not a requirement. We then went back. We filed our notice of appeal. And we said very specifically, we're appealing from the announcement of a decision. We said the judgment has not been entered. And we said we're relying on 4A2. And so we thought we knew what we were doing. We studied this and did this on purpose. Then we get the letter from the circuit court that said, please brief the issue of whether we have jurisdiction because, excuse me, Judge Bohannon was considering findings of fact and conclusions of law. You don't think you would have been at any risk if you had delayed filing your notice of appeal until after the formal entry of judgment, do you? The only risk that I see as a trial lawyer is the risk of misdocketing, the risk of mailing it late, the risk of running up a deadline. When you're trying these lawsuits and you'll occasionally lose some of them, you need to appeal, you wake up at night and you think, oh, have I filed the motion? You never wake up at night thinking, I filed it too early. You're always worried about 
about getting it on file or, or is it docketed right or is the mail going to run. So that's the, that's the decision. There's also another reason for getting these in early. If It's like uh, playing football. Uh, once you lose one game or win one game, you want to focus on the next game as soon as possible. And that's the way Ms. Dansby and I looked at it. When we came back from the hearing of Judge Bohannon, we had lost this case in the trial court. Judge Bohannon, in his decision, you can read it in, in the appendix. Says, yes, but you certainly can mark your trial, your desk calendar to file notice of appeal uh, later. You don't dismiss it entirely from your mind, do you? No, Your Honor, you don't. It's constantly on your mind. Uh, and, and, and seriously, you wake up in the middle of the night sometimes wondering, when am I supposed to file it? And, and am, am I going to get it done on time? Well, if you mark your, your desk calendar, you won't wake up in the middle of the night. Well, you, well I do. <laughs> and, and, and you just do. Uh, you can take all those steps that you want to to try to get it docketed on time, and you still want, you, you just worry until it's done. And usually it gets done. Usually there is no problem. But, but you want to also focus on the, the next, the next uh, step. And so uh, we, we then started focusing on the appeal after Judge Bohannon ruled. And in, in, in his ruling, he says, there's no doubt in my mind. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind about this case. And he said that immediately after he said, Mr. Gray, or Mr. Uh, he told us to help him prepare some findings of fact which would support him. His very next sentence is, there's no doubt in my mind, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind about what I'm going to do in this case. Well, then we get the letter from the spring, from the Court of uh, Appeals, we brief it, and then they send us back an order, which is essentially a, a sentence long that says, uh, we don't have jurisdiction because the announcement was not a final decision uh, as described by 28 U.S.C. 1291. The announcement was not final. Our point is, well, I guess we have really two points. Number one, it's not supposed to be final. There's no call for it to be final. The rule doesn't require it to be final. And two, in our case, if you want to, if you want to write the word final into the rule, uh, this was a final decision. It disposed of all of the issues It disposed for all the parties. 1291 certainly speaks in terms of a final decision. Final decision, it? yes, Your Honor. And I think that, and, and, and Professor Moore, uh, I agree with him, and as is pointed out by opposing counsel, Professor Moore says Rule 42A talks about a, an oral announcement which will result in a final decision uh, or a final judgment, I think. Well, surely the uh, case wasn't ready for review uh, in a, by an appellate court uh, based on uh, Judge Bohannon's oral statement. There weren't any findings of fact. There weren't any conclusions of law, and he said that uh, he certainly <clears throat> had some more things to do uh, uh, to make the, his decision reviewable. Well, I think that his decision was reviewable at that time uh, because he didn't have to enter. He could have changed his mind and just said, I'm just not going to do findings of fact conclusions of law. Uh, we did, it, we would have, everybody would want to see a journal entry entered. So you would have the 30-day start to run from that time. But even that can be waived by the parties as the Bankers' Trust case. Mr. Dawson, now you're not arguing it was reviewable at the time of the oral announcement. Every case covered by this rule is not reviewable at the time of the oral announcement because it clearly speaks to orders that are not yet final. I, I was only They're all pre-judgment and oral announcements. Yes, Your Honor. I think that's the whole that's, purpose of the rule. That's correct. I, I think that under an extreme circumstance, 
that that ruling could have been reviewable at that time. I don't think it's even necessary to reach that because we didn't. I, I truly thought that we're going to have a journal entry of judgment. That starts our time to re, to, to run. But the rule doesn't say anything about journal entries. It talks about oral announcements. Yes, Your Honor, and, and a, uh, the oral announcement of a decision. And the question is whether this was an announcement within the meaning of that rule. That's the whole issue. Is yes, Your Honor. Now, and, Mr. Uh, Dawson, do you, do you think that a, a rule of appellate procedure uh, can make appealable something which 1291 does not make appealable? No, Your Honor. And I, so it would have to be a final decision before it could be appealed? It would have to be an appealable decision. Well, interlocutory or collateral yes, order, yes, or something uh, like that. Yes, yes, 1291-1292. In other words, the rule itself could not enlarge what's appealable. That's correct, Your Honor. No, but the rule doesn't purport to do that. It speaks no. to the date at which the thing becomes appealable, which is after it becomes final, and that's when the oral, that's when the notice of appeal becomes effective under the rule. That's correct. At that point, the so court it's of appeal. perfectly clear there was no finality before the judgment was entered. No appealability couldn't have been. You couldn't change the act of Congress. But if your note of appeal was followed the day after it became a final, if the rule provided, that's when it becomes effective, that's the end of the ballgame, isn't it? I'm sorry, Your Honor, I, I didn't if, you, if your notice of appeal becomes effective as soon as the judgment becomes final, which is what the rule says, yes, sir. then, of course, you have a, a, then a final judgment to appeal. Yes, sir. That's what the rule says. That's, what. that's correct. And that's our position is if we just, if you'll just let us, the, the lawyers that are trying the cases and appealing, follow the rules as they're written, and uh, if they're enforced as they're written, then they'll be effective and, and, and uh, it'll, be a, it'll be a, make my job a lot simpler. This court uh, is committed to uh, practical, common-sense construction of statutes and rules. And if there is, a, if, if there is any uh, way to interpret a rule uh, in past decisions, uh, you've been committed to the rule that we will interpret it to save an appeal, not to facilitate its loss. And uh, so even if you want to, even if you have to interpret this rule, I think that that's the way it should be looked at first. Uh, I would, I would ask the court to. I think we're we're more or less committed to using this word "final" and "finality" as it's as it's applied to judgments and so forth. But then to try to apply that term to oral announcements is really going to cause a lot of problems. Uh, Wright and Miller talking about final judgments, quoted uh, Judge Frank from the Second Circuit in 1942, and he said this term finality is a slithery, tricky word, and there's not much finality to the definition of finality. I think this court has recognized that it's, and has called it a twilight zone. The use of the word finality is a twilight zone. Uh, it's a subject of perpetual debate, a jungle of doubt. Those words have been used about the word finality. So if you, if you want to, that's the reason I suggested earlier that, that, that the word appealability is a lot easier to deal with in this context than, than finality is. I just don't understand that argument because appealability and finality are the same thing. Appealability is after the judgment becomes final. All you do is postpone the effective date of the notice. It doesn't change the date of appealability or the date of finality. Well, there is a, there's a, there are, there's a slim bunch of cases, which is called the collateral order doctrine. If this order sounds the death knell for the case, 
regardless of whether it's final, take a, a, a double jeopardy type. Yeah, of but if it's a collateral order doctrine, then it's final when it's entered. But you don't have to rely on that. Well, As I understand your position, it just it, it doesn't become final until the judgment's entered. But notice of appeal is treated as if it were filed the day the next day. Yes, Your Honor. In, in our simple case that we have yeah. here, that is absolutely. And that's clear. what the rule says. Yes, sir. That is uh, very simply our, our position, and I'll reserve the rest of my time. Thank you, Mr. Dawson. Uh, Mr. Roberts, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. I would respectfully propose that this case involves two basic issues to this appeal. The first is, what is the meaning of a final judgment under Section 1291? And the second is, what is the purpose and effect of Rule 4A2 under the Federal Rules of Appellate Procedure? By enacting Section 1221, Congress mandated that appellate jurisdiction, appellate jurisdiction be limited to final decisions. This evolved into what is commonly referred to as the final judgment rule, which requires a party must ordinarily raise all claims of error in a single appeal following a final judgment on merits. And there's, I would propose that there are several advantages to the final judgment rule. The first advantage would be it avoids the appellate courts and the trial courts looking at the same issue at the same time. It, allow, it avoids the appellate courts' interference. Mr. Roberts, that's not involved by your opponent's theory here. There's no jurisdiction in the appellate court until the notice of appeal becomes effective. That's correct, Your Honor. And it doesn't become effective until the judgment becomes final. That's correct, Your Honor. And our position is the judgment became effective on March 3rd at the time the court entered its memorandum of opinion and the judgment was entered. And, the, and also the notice of appeal became effective on that same date under the rule. That's correct, Your Honor. That's our and then how is there any danger of both courts having jurisdiction at the same time? Well, I was just advocating some policy arguments in, in favor of the single judgment rule. If you they mean, have nothing to do with this case. Well, right. is it, is at least I, I think you just agreed to that, because the only relevant date is the March 3rd date. That's correct, Your Honor. I might just briefly make, make a few statements of what the record indicates of the hearing on January the 26th, 1989. The court did say, I find that the policy should be and are canceled as void for want of bad faith and fraud. However, the, the uh, trial court asked IMI, the, the respondent, to submit proposed findings of fact conclusions of the law, which were not required, but nevertheless the court uh, requested that. And the, and the trial court specifically stated on the record that it will look to what IMI submits as suggestions and, as, and only suggestions only. And the court specifically stated that it reserved the right to modify, add to, delete, and write its own findings of fact and conclusions of law. And Mr. Roberts, isn't that true of every case covered by this rule? When an oral announcement is made, the judge can always change his mind. Absolutely. Well, then what case does the rule cover if it doesn't cover this case? Uh, I can't disagree with you, Your Honor. I, I, the court on, on March 3rd, 1989, entered its memorandum of opinion. No, but on earlier than that, on January 26th, it made an oral announcement, didn't it? Uh, yes, it did. Did it make an oral announcement within the meaning of this rule? I submit it did not. It did not say this was a final decision. Well, but the rule doesn't require him to say it's a final decision. I the word final, final doesn't appear in the rule. That's true. And what is the point of the rule if it isn't just postpone the effective date of the notice until after the decision becomes final? Isn't that exactly what the rule is intended to do? Rule 482? Rule 482, yes. Well... There have been three, the lower courts have apparently taken three different looks at 4A2. The first was that 
uh, any time uh, that, that a, a premature appeal to a non-final order uh, will be firmed up, so to speak, at the time that the court enters its final order. Other courts have taken the position that Rule 4A4 is the only exception to Rule 4A2, so that, so that when you have tolling motions filed, that a new notice of appeal has to be filed then. I would, 4A4 isn't involved. We don't have a tolling motion right. here. Okay. I would propose that the correct rule is that uh, the announcement of a decision can only be an announcement of a final decision. And the, and the purpose of 4A2 is when you do not have either the separate document required under Rule 4A6 or a delay in the clerk's filing on the civil docket in Rule 4A6. The reason I submit that is the commentary says that Rule 4, 4A2 was designed to afford uh, civil litigants the protection afforded 4B under the criminal procedure. Uh, this court in Lemke held that when a defendant was convicted and, and, and uh, sentenced, he then filed a notice of intent to appeal, and it was subsequently entered, the condition was subsequently entered on the clerk's docket. This court held that that was a valid appeal. I would respectfully submit that that's the correct interpretation of the rule. You would, you would, in fact, treat the rule as though it read, instead of after the announcement of a decision or order, after the announcement of a final judgment. The, and, before the formal entry of the judgment, it shall so. Exactly, under Rule 4A6. That's what, that's what we would propose that the interpretation of Rule 4A2 is. And, and I suppose you would make the argument that if, if that isn't what it means, uh, it, it would not continue but before the entry of the judgment or order. It would say but before, but before the final judgment shall be treated after such final judgment. If I follow you correctly, Your Honor, it would cover that minor if, gap. If they didn't mean a final, if they didn't mean a final decision or order in the first part of 4A2, they wouldn't have had to refer to entry of the judgment or order in the second part. They could have just said final judgment in the second part. That's, that's a literal reading of the rule. And it also supports But even in that, could any such decision or order be really final if it's before the judgment is entered? The judge can always modify it, couldn't he? The judge can always modify it. That's correct, Your Honor. So it would never be final. Uh, I believe that's correct. Do you think it's customary for a district court, at least in your practice in, in Oklahoma City, uh, to order the making of findings of fact and conclusions of law when he decides to grant a motion for summary judgment? I would submit it's very appropriate for the reason is uh, the trial court realizes that the appellate court may look at his ruling on motion for summary judgment and what, what findings of fact did the court rely upon in, in reaching its decision and what ca- statutory well, cases ordered. I, I thought our motion for summary judgment was limited to cases where there were no disputed questions of fact, that the district court, if the district court has to find a fact on any sort of conflicting evidence, then it's not appropriate for summary judgment. Uh, oftentimes on summary judgment, there may be uh, an interpretation of a given set of facts, and the, and the trial, I would submit the trial court to protect the record, might want to enter findings of fact and conclusions of law. Well, there may not be disputed facts, but there are facts on a summary judgment. How can you decide a question of law without knowing what those facts uh, are if, if there's a... So if everybody, what they in effect, the court's going to say to grant summary judgment, is that everybody is agreed about what the facts are? Uh, that the facts are undisputed, Your Honor. Yes. And in this case, the court entered, I believe, 23 findings of fact and 15 conclusions of law. The findings of fact in this case were very detailed as far as what were in the insurance applications and what was relied upon and various factual bases. Uh, I, would, I would anticipate that the court thought that it was going up on appeal and give some guidance to the Tenth Circuit.
But I presume every one of those factual, it was really factual statements by the district court. He wasn't finding on the basis of conflicting evidence, but he was just setting forth the facts that the parties agreed were facts. Wouldn't that be the case in the motion for summary judgment? I would submit that the record reflects that he asked for findings of fact uh, from, from uh, IMI. First here, uh, proposed their findings of fact. The court said on the record it was going to write its own judgment and its own findings of fact, which it apparently did on March 3rd. Now that's what the record reflects. Um, I would I would submit that it, it, that it, it, the court did, did not was not required to submit findings of fact uh, on a ruling on a motion for summary judgment. But in this case, it did so. I assume it felt it, it should in order to protect the record on appeal that the Tenth Circuit was going to be looking at it. I take it the Tenth Circuit has not ruled on the uh, pending appeal with reference to the second filing? It has not. The, uh, the oral argument, I believe, was held in May of this year, and the oral, the, it has been briefed. Oral argument was held in May, and, I, and we've heard nothing from the Tenth Circuit on the subsequent appeal. It, it, there is the potential that uh, if we ruled, our ruling would be moot. There is that potential, because I, I, the Tenth Circuit could rule on the merits at any time, I assume. We have heard nothing from the Tenth Circuit with regard to that second appeal. Well, to conclude, we would, we would uh, uh, ask the Court to follow that interpretation with respect to Rule 4A2. And if the Justices have no further questions. Thank you, Mr. Roberts. Uh, Mr. Dawson, do you have rebuttal? Just, just, uh, just one point on rebuttal. Uh, it, and it kind of begs the question because I don't think that the oral announcement had to be final. But uh, the U.S. versus Schaefer Brewing Company, we learned in that that it's a fine. The court should look at the actions of all the parties to see whether or not it was a final announcement. And for that reason, I, I understand what, what final and um, well. Your 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 approach to four A two requires requires us to decide what is an announcement. Uh, that that is, uh, you you say there can be an announcement that is not a final announcement. Well, suppose the judge says, I intend to rule this way on the matter. Then I would not call that an announcement of a decision. He's that telling you what he intends to do. And I, and I would not call that a decision. I think you'd have to wait until he ruled. It has to be a current ruling. I think so, sir. And, uh, but not necessarily a final ruling. <laughs> I mean, he says, uh, you know, I'm ruling this way. Um, I may change my mind before I enter it. But for the time being, that's my ruling. Is that an announcement? Yes, sir. It is, even though he can still change his he mind. Can, even if he doesn't say he can change his mind, he can change his mind. He can change his mind 10 days after he enters the judgment. Well, so in that context, it isn't final. The final that I'm talking about is, does it dispose of all the issues? Does it dispose of all the parties? That type of finale. What, what if this had been a bench trial, Mr. Dawson, not a motion for summary judgment? And at the close of the bench trial, the judge says, uh, Looking, looks at his notes, he says, I'm going to find for the plaintiff and against the defendant, and uh, outlines very generally what he thinks the facts are. And then he turns to the plaintiff's lawyer and says, now, plaintiffs submit findings of fact and conclusions of law. The defendants have certain time to object to them, etc." Is, is, is that <coughs> final under, under the rule within your view? Yes, sir. Particular, particularly even, even though findings of fact on contested issues and possible objections to them and the district court changing his mind after he sees the objection? Can, the district court can always change his mind. Well, then, doesn't, then it really doesn't sound terribly final, does it? 
Well, because if it, well, it's not final. Even after he enters the judgment, as I said earlier, he can change his mind. In 10 days, within 10 days, sua sponte, under Rule 59, he can change his mind and completely reverse himself without, without a motion. And so under that concept, whether the judge can change his or her mind it shouldn't fit into the finality formula. But there's, there's something st still incomplete to be done there, a whole segment of the case to be finished. Yes, sir. There, there, well, a segment of the case, there are some what I would call ministerial duties. Well, but I, I don't think findings of fact uh, certainly are necessarily ministerial duties. The judge can rule for you from the bench, and yet you get into questions of fact, and maybe the plaintiff wants one set of facts found, the defense wants another, and the trial judge looks back at his notes, maybe as a transcript, and he doesn't go along with the plaintiff on some of the findings of fact. That's correct. I, I, I totally agree with that. And as I said, a, a final decision doesn't mean it can't be changed. Well, final. I thought you were, earlier you indicated you really didn't care whether the, uh, it wasn't critical whether this oral announcement was a final judgment or not. I don't think it is. And uh, well, because uh, you say the rule can, uh, uh, under the rule what you're appealing is the judgment when he enters it. That's correct. Because the rule says the, the, your, your prior filing will be considered filed on the day the judgment is entered. On the day the judgment is entered, and that's, that is what you really appeal from. And if the judgment springs from the oral announcement and is, and is the same... So you aren't appealing. You aren't a, you're really, in effect, under the rule, you aren't appealing his oral announcement. You're appealing no, you're his final judgment. Absolutely. That's what you appeal. You just get to file it before he actually enters the judgment and it springs to life as he files that, that judgment. If he changes or she changes her mind before the journal entry of judgment is filed, then your appeal could be moved, or you may have to file a new... All he has to do is say, listen, uh, uh, here's my bottom line. You win, you lose. I will tell you why later. That's correct. And you can file your... File your notice of appeal. Right then and where, and then wait for a year, if, uh, waiting on the judge. Yes, sir. And then when he or she files that journal entry, then the circuit court... It becomes effective. They well, certainly can't say that, that uh, what he has to, yet to do after his oral announcement is just ministerial, like just making up a piece of paper and filing it. Well, I, I, um, it's, uh, it certainly isn't ministerial. It's, uh, he's gonna, <coughs> you fellows are going to have to do a lot of work, and the judge is going to have to do a, work, a lot of work. He says, I may revise or uh, I may not take any of your submissions. I may make my own. Maybe ministerial was a, a poor choice of words. Well, I, I take it this is not the kind of case where the clerk, uh, uh, without awaiting the direction of a court, can enter judgment under Rule 58. Or was it? Was it a judgment which denied all relief? Yes, yes, Your Honor, it was. And, and I, it seems like to me that the clerk could have done that. And if you look at the docket sheet... Acting on, under Rule 58. Yes, sir. I, I think that the clerk could have done that in this case. It didn't happen. And in our district, it just doesn't happen. The clerk just doesn't do that. I don't know why, but they just don't. 58 talks about a decision. Yes. But that just isn't our practice, and so I really don't have any experience with that. But under the rule, it looks like that could have happened in this case. There's nothing further than I'm through. Thank you, Mr. Dawson. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock. <laughs>